Good morning. My name is Will Cody, and I'm the campus minister at Austin P with uh, Presbyterian Church in America. And thank you. Uh, uh, so when I get the privilege to preach here, um, we've been going, generally we've been going through the book of James, and we've made it all the way to chapter 5. If you could turn there, there's a, in the pew Bibles that are in your, in your seats there, it's on page 1013. Um, as you turn there, we've described James as the book of trials, and our trial today, as we go through all these various trials that he presents to us, um, we might call this the trial of the oppressed. Um, in this text that we're about to read, James is telling us how we are to endure and be patient. When we see the wicked seem to prevail and flourish and seem to get away with it all, whatever our response to this might be at the heart of it, at the foundation, James wants his readers to be patient. And we're going to work out what this means as we go through this text together. So let's hear God speak to us today from James chapter 5, verses 1 through the first part of verse 7. James writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard text, and we pray that you would give us uh, soft hearts to take in your truth here, and that your truth would set us free. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's this, in the Minor Prophets in the Old Testament, there's this one book. Uh, it's a short book. It's only three chapters. It's the book of Nahum. Um, you can go home and you can just read it in a few minutes. It's that short. Um, it was written in the mid-600 B.C. when the most powerful nation in the world, Assyria, was at the height of its power. I have a map up here that will show what the Assyrian Empire looked like, at the height of its power. It's all that green stuff, the dark green and the light green. That's Assyria. They've taken over most of Egypt, all that area, and you see a little that little yellow spot there is Judah. There had never been, before this time, a more powerful and oppressive empire. One of the hallmarks of Assyria was that they would practice torture, massacres, um, extortions of whole nations, and vast exiles of nations such as Israel. And Judah was facing all of these pressures um, in the mid-600s B.C., and the Assyrians are really good at making examples to the whole world of what their might and what their power uh, would bring if you didn't do what they said. One historian described them this way. This is like from, that's from Wikipedia. This is from like history.com or something like this. This is from an historian. said that Assyria was an aggressive, murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. As with the German army of World War II, the Assyrian army was the most technologically and doctrinally advanced of its day and was a model for others for generations afterwards. And what's peculiar 
uh, with that as the background of the book of Nahum. Is Na- the book of Nahum is three chapters, and it's all about Assyria. And even much of it is God talking to Assyria. So, for example, God talks to the king of Assyria in Nahum chapter 1, verses 14. And there's some other examples I couldn't even bring here because I blushed so hard of the things that God is saying to Assyria. But God says to the king of Assyria, The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, king of Assyria, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. So God is talking to the king of Assyria This is the most powerful man, literally, in the world at this time. And he's saying, I'm going to cut off all of your gods, you know, destroy your temples, and I'm going to cut you off, too. You're going to have no more descendants. No one else is going to be on the throne. I'm going to cut off everybody in your line. But the funny thing is, Assyria is not hearing what Nahum is saying and what God is saying through Nahum. As far as we know, Nahum never went to Assyria to deliver this message. And there wouldn't be Assyrians living in Judah because they were at war at this time. And even if they were to hear what the God of Judah says, they wouldn't care. Judah's this little blip on the map in their empire. But God's people, the people of Judah, they hear this message. They hear this prophecy. They listen as God speaks to Assyria that God knows what these Assyrians are doing to them. He knows, and also they know that how God will respond by destroying them and bringing justice. And that's exactly what happened in 612 BC when the Babylonians and the Medes, some of the Assyrian subjects, rose up and destroyed the capital, Nineveh, and the empire completely fell apart like virtually overnight. It was something, it was an incredible moment in history. Well, this is what this section in James is like as well. So, James is talking to these rich oppressors, but whether the rich oppressors hear it or not is not the main point. The main point is for those in the church community to listen to and hear that God knows what these rich oppressors are doing. And and they also get to hear what God's response will be and that God will bring justice in the midst of injustice. Both of these audiences, the nation of Judah, which we just talked about, and this James's audience, this church community, are experiencing injustice, and injustice seems like it's going to be the last word. What recourse do you have against Assyria? What recourse would we have against these rich oppressors? But God breaks in with this resounding no. Be patient. I'm going to make all things right. In our text today, James shows us three reasons that we should be patient when it seems like injustice is going to be the last word. We should be patient for three reasons here in our text. Because God sees the works of the wicked, because because God hears the cry of the oppressed, and because God comes to make everything right. So let's look at our first point, that we can be patient because God sees the works of the wicked. So James starts off the address here in verses 1 through 3, and he starts off to, he says, Come now, you rich. So this book, in the book of James, if you've been here uh, as I've been preaching through this book when I get a chance, um, he addresses these people as brothers over and over and over. Brothers and sisters, dear beloved brothers and sisters. Fifteen times at least that I counted, he calls them, this is whenever he addresses his audience. But now he shifts, and now he's addressing somebody different. He's addressing these rich 
unbelieving, or sadly, maybe even some believing, of rich, oppressive people, and as the church community is going to listen on to what God says to them. And there's a particular sin that he is calling out on these, in these opening verses. He tells them to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. Why? It's a sin that, it's a thing, it's a sin that we would, might not expect. It's because they have laid up treasure in these last days. James's accusation is that they have laid up treasure, they have hoarded their wealth in these last days, over and above the things that they need to live and to simply enjoy life, they've been storing away all the extra for themselves. Now, there's lots of places in the Bible where Jesus' parables, he's got several parables about this, where God speaks against hoarding wealth, against building barns and stuffing all your stuff in there. And often the takeaway is that hoarding wealth and gaining, gaining possessions and wealth is pointless because we're all going to die, and you can't take it with you when you die. And that is absolutely true. That's a good point to take away from those. But James and other places in the Bible take it even further. They say that it is not just pointless to store up possessions and money and clothing and treasure, but it's actually evil to do this. It's an affront to God and to other people to store up your wealth. Now, why would hoarding your wealth not just be pointless, but be evil? And it's particularly evil here. Look at these harsh words that James delivers to these people that are hoarding their wealth. Well, look at verses 2 to 3. Um, James says, he uses some interesting verb tenses in this section. He says that your riches have rotted. He says that your garments are already moth-eaten. He says that silver and gold have corroded. Now, he's not speaking literally like these guys are walking around in moth-eaten garments and stuff. What he's getting at is that, well, if you remember from chemistry class, I'm sure you all remember, the noble metals. Remember what noble metals don't do? Anybody know? They don't corrode. Yeah, and gold and silver, these are, thanks whoever knew that. uh, (laughs) uh, I did not know that before looking at this text. Uh, gold and silver do not corrode, actually. You can, you can um, leave these in a treasure box forever, and they're never going to rust. You can, these can be at the bottom of the ocean in a shipwreck, and we can go find them, and they're going to be all shiny after you just rinse them off. Um, this is why we have them in our teeth. I have them in my teeth because I got my fillings in Korea, and they did gold there. And all the dentists look at my teeth. They're like, wow, they're very impressed that I have gold fillings. That's an aside that I shouldn't have brought up. Um, <laughs> but it's because they don't corrode. Gold and silver do not corrode. Um, What he's getting at here is that from God's point of view, they are corroded. They are rusted because they've been unused. And because they've been unused and been sitting around, they're not only unused, but they've also been misused. They're being used for the rich to feel comfortable, to feel safe, to maybe make even a show to the rest of society, or maybe even some other evil use. And in God's economy, they might as well be rotten and rusted, and moth-eaten, because they're not being used the way that he gave them uh, to us, to them, to be used. And this is evil because our excess money and resources are not meant to be hoarded and sat on. They aren't ours to do what we want. Instead, our excess money, riches, whatever, they're meant for justice and mercy. They're meant to be given away to people that need them, or to give away to churches 
that can distribute them, or agencies or NGOs that have the resources and know specifically how to care for people. Um, here's what Paul writes to the rich in um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the opposite of what James, the people that James is describing. This is what we are supposed to do with our excess money and wealth. He says, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul's saying here that real treasure, real eternal treasure, is found in giving away your treasure, your excess wealth, your wealth. God gives people, God gives people, God gives us more than they need so that they can be generous and ready to share and a blessing to those who have less than they need. And it's really important to God that we do this, that people do this. Um, imagine the scenario, okay? Imagine the scenario. Imagine that you're a student, maybe you're in high school or you're in middle school, and imagine you go to a school where there's these lower income people, uh, students are also at this school, and your parents give you twice the money that you need for lunch. And they say, share what's left over with someone who needs it. But instead of sharing, you hoard it up every day. You fill your piggy bank till it's about to bust. You, your wallet's about to bust at the seams. At this, while at the same time, people are going hungry that you were meant to, to take care of and to help feed and serve. That would be an evil thing to do. That's not like a passive sin of omission at this point. You are stealing, we would be stealing from the poor. That would be abusing and misusing our parents' money that was meant for mercy and generosity and justice. And for those that do this, James saying here that when they're, when they're taking and they're hoarding, maybe because they're doing it because they think in society people will respect them, or accept them, or they'll feel like they'll have some kind of significance, or maybe they're doing it just because it will somehow keep them safe. But that's the opposite, but the opposite is actually what is going to happen to them. God sees everything that they are hoarding away. James says that the wealth that they thought was going to save them actually turns out to be evidence against them. If you look at verse two, and we can put verse two and three up there. It ends up to be evidence against them. The money in that piggy bank or bank accounts, or whatever extravagance they've sunk their excess money into, it gets seized and placed into an evidence locker, because it's going to be used against them. This is evidence that they have misused God's money for themselves, neglected the poor, and laid up treasure in the last days. And James uses some very vivid imagery. He says that the evidence, this evidence, I don't know exactly how this works, but he says that the evidence will eat their flesh like fire. It's like the misery that they could have alleviated and saved people from in this world is coming back on them in the next, and they are experiencing what they caused in their greed. Um, I don't know if this sounds like harsh to you, but God is very, very concerned with the poor and the powerless. This isn't some, this, this, doesn't, this is not some arbitrary stuff. This isn't some <coughs> arbitrary rule. We love making arbitrary rules about stuff, but God does not, this is not an arbitrary rule. He hates injustice because he loves people. He hates it when we use ex the extra that we have on ourselves instead of the weak, you know, from Psalm 82 that we read, the, the weak 
um, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, the needy, because God loves them. And if you're a believer, this is why you and I were saved. Not to relish in my salvation, not just enjoy God's protection, not just, uh, just feel safe in his love and care for me. Those are great things. We should meditate on those things. But God chose you and set his love on you and his protection on you and his care on you so that you would freely serve and love and be generous, not only with your money, but with your time, uh, with your energy, with your resources, with the power that you have, whatever context you're in, toward others and for others. This is what we're supposed to do with our money, with our excess money. But when we see those around us, and I'm being, uh, I'm not giving any real specifics here. I'll leave the Holy Spirit, I'll leave that up to the Holy Spirit to, to uh, show you what that might look like in, in our lives. Um, but when we, see, when we see those around us that are flouting luxury and uh, living in greedy self-indulgence, what does it look like for those who trust in Jesus, maybe in James's original community here, um, people who trust in Jesus as he is my ultimate eternal protection. He is my ultimate eternal savior. What does it look like for us, who Jesus has got us, what does it look like for us to be patient? Here's one way. It's easy to look uh, around us in our lives, the people in our lives, the people we run into, uh, social media, TV, whatever, news, and we see people living these comfortable, opulent, overflowing with wealth lives. And here's one direction that my heart goes into, maybe yours does sometimes as well. There's this panic I have that I'm not doing as well as those around me, that I've, I've fallen behind, that I need to find some kind of scheme to get some more money. I need to front like I'm in this upper echelon that everybody else seems to be in, that I, and I need to start maybe even hoarding up wealth as well. Because maybe, maybe they're onto something. It seems like they seem happy and shiny, Maybe they're onto something. Well, this guy named uh, Asaph, like 2,000, 3,000 years ago, there was a guy named Asaph, and he had this exact same problem. And he wrote a song about it. And um, here's the first several lines of the song. Um, he writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You can bookmark this. This is Psalm 73. You can bookmark this for later. Write it on your hands. You can go back and read the rest and see what happens to Asaph, how Asaph gets out of this problem. But what is this? This is exactly the, the same feeling that I've felt in my heart before. But what does this text show us? Those things that I'm panicking about are trash. Infatuation with the wealthy infatuation with wealth and the security that comes from wealth is foolish. If I were to become like them, I would, that would hinder me from experiencing God and trusting in him. And not only that, it would, I would harm myself and I would harm others around me instead of being a blessing to them. Um, hearing this message to the rich, we can be patient and content. And what God gives to me to live on, that I can just be generous with what I don't need. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, this is one of my favorite verses, a great verse to memorize, it's really short, but he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all the things that you need 
to live will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom, seek first his righteousness and his justice, and he's going to take care of you. Jesus says here, he promises it to you, I got you, trust me with your wealth. Let me give, so one way to be patient is when we see the prosperity of the wicked, we can just be content with what we have. Then outward facingly, let me give one more just quick application for this text. Um, this might be the first time you've ever heard about this stuff and uh, this hoarding stuff, and you're like, oh crud, that's, that's describing me. Um, if this is you, um, one of the responses that we can have toward this God who um, undeservedly is kind to us and generous with us is, is to think, is there somewhere you know that some of your money could go that would be a blessing to people? A blessing. You were blessed to be a blessing. It could be the work of the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and help people in need. I love that video from, uh, from France, uh, all these believers from all these different countries, um, giving to the work of the church to proclaim the gospel um, and take care of people in need is another thing the church does, ours does. Or maybe you know an organization that you trust that blesses people, and you can just commit to give some portion of your, pay, of your paycheck to them every month as soon as you get paid every month before you go and spend it, like I would do. Um, this would be, in the light of Jesus has got you, this would be patience, in the opposite of panic. So we should be patient because God sees the works of the wicked, and we can also be patient because God hears the cry of the oppressed. Look with me in James uh, 5.4. James writes, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So James has a further indictment toward these rich not only are they, they, they stealing by hoarding wealth, they're stealing by hoarding wealth, but they're flagrantly stealing by not paying people that are under their care. So James has in mind these physical, in, in his context, it would have been these physical laborers that would be mowing the rich people's fields and harvesting their fields and doing labor for them, being productive for them. And somehow, and this is rarely um, cut and dry, or rarely simple, but somehow this rich oppressor has been able to use their power being in the wealthy upper class, to not pay them, or to pay them less than they had agreed upon, or to pay them very late. And in this day and age, in that day and age, um, if you didn't get paid that day, you did not eat that day, and your family did not eat that day. So the rich here are getting richer, and the poor here are getting poorer and more and more miserable. And it looks like injustice is the last word. What else, what other recourse could anyone possibly turn to. But that's not the end of the story, because the wages, the, the image here is like the wages are in the rich guy's pocket, and they're crying out, stolen, guilty, their evidence against this rich man. And also, there's the, the cries of the harvesters, these servants themselves. When they cry out, the, their cries reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, Lord of hosts means... Uh, there's a Martin Luther um, hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and there's a line in there, you might not know what it means. It says, Lord Sabaoth, and Lord Sabaoth means Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies. This means that the cries of these poor oppressed people have reached the ears of the Lord of armies. So imagine a messenger desperately riding into the throne room, and he's 
bursting open the doors. He's riding on his horse, and he busts through the, busts through the doors to come and deliver this message to the Lord of armies, and he's flanked by his big, strong generals. And the messenger comes up, delivers the message to the king, and the king comes to know that one of his beloved servants has been oppressed by this, by this, uh, this powerful oppressor. And the landowner thinks, this powerful landowner thinks he's in the clear, he thinks he's all right, but the Lord of hosts has heard. And the Lord of hosts is enraged and coming to bring justice with his armies. Now, I'm sure that someone here uh, needs to know this. Maybe you've needed to know this in the past. It would be nice for you to hear this in the future. Uh, but God hears our, hears our cries for injustice. God hears your cries for injustice, and he is coming to make things right. He may make it all right soon. He may make it all right in eternity, but it's going to be satisfying when it happens. He hears you, and he cares for you. And if you're being treated with injustice, or in the future, if you are treated with injustice, know that you can cry to God, and he will hear your prayer. He hates injustice, especially for his people. He hears the cry of the oppressed, and he always responds so we can be patient. And this leads to our last point, that we should be patient because God does actually come to make all things right. The image here continues. The Lord of hosts is enraged. And it, the image here going into verse 5 and 6 goes back to the, har to the uh, landowner. And he's kicking back, thinking he's in the clear, living this life of luxury and self-indulgent on the backs of the poor that they are defrauding and stealing from and hoarding against. And the poor servant, he's not getting any personal vengeance. He's heard what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we're not supposed to... Um, resist an evil person, like we're not going to get revenge ourselves on an evil person. So the defrauder, he's got no, he's got no uh, challenge to him, and he thinks he's in the clear, and he's fattening his heart with all of his treasures, his ill-gotten treasures, when suddenly there comes, suddenly on him, the day of slaughter. And all the ways that he has been abusing his power, hurting people, hurting families, comes back on him in one fell swoop when the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, returns on the last day. And the Lord of hosts is going to make an end to all abusers, an end to all abuse, an end to all oppression, an end to all oppressors. Everything evil and all who cling to their evil will be condemned and punished and swept away. Now, how does knowing this, that abusers like this will get a just punishment, how does this help us to be patient now. Maybe the description of this landowner has brought to mind someone that has ripped you off in the past when you were down. I remember when I was in uh, college, I was desperate for money and I was working my tail off. And this guy lied to me and said that I couldn't get uh, overtime for some reason. And all those wasted money, this guy was stealing from me. It was really triggering as I read those texts. <laughs> or someone who in some other way used their power to abuse you or someone that you love or someone who was supposed to take care of you and instead took care of themselves and it's wreaked havoc in your mind and life. Um, I have some examples in my own mind, but part of me really wants to get revenge. Maybe in speaking to them or speaking about them or if I somehow, the chance happens upon me that I can make their life miserable by doing this, I do that. But in verse 7, 
James turns back to brothers and sisters. He's been talking to the rich people, and he turns now back to the brothers and sisters. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until this coming of the Lord. Be patient until he brings his justice in the full, and he makes things right. What he's saying here, and it's all over the Bible, is that we are not to seek revenge. What, what patience looks like here is we are not to seek revenge on the people that wrong us. We can, we can seek justice. We can seek protection. We can call the cops. But we are not to get personal revenge. Uh, one place that's very explicit about this, there are several, but one of them is in Romans chapter 12, in verse 17. Paul writes to that community there, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is a time coming where God will judge the wicked exactly as they deserve. And you don't have to worry if it's going to be too much, and you don't have to worry if it's going to be too little. We have terrible ideas of what justice looks like. But he will allow everything that they've been storing up in all of their greed and their abuse to fall back on their own heads. Um, you and I are terrible judges. We don't know what people deserve, and we were, we were incap incapable of actually exacting it from them. So we can just be patient and let God handle it. The patience that James is calling for is this patience to know that Jesus will make, all, in history, he is going to make all things right. And we can rest in him and not seek revenge on anybody. Take it a step further. Let's not seek revenge. What's the opposite of seeking revenge? Forgiving them and loving them. If, if you can't, uh, you know, physically, like, love them somehow, we can at least pray for them. Pray for our enemies. Pray for even the people that oppress us. We can pray for them and love them. It's radical. And here's where James leaves us with this question. At the end of the day, do you trust this Jesus who is coming? Do you trust him? And if you do, what would that actually look like in your life? I've got four questions here to just think about, and then we'll finish. Would it look like maybe giving up on riches and maybe being intentionally generous from our first point? What's one application? Number two, what's another good question? What would it look like calling out to him in your distress? Maybe that's a great application and response to this text. I've never called out to God in my distress, and I can do that because he hears me. Or what would it look like forgiving your enemy instead of holding grudges or getting revenge? And finally, what would it look like entrusting yourself to this Jesus? Maybe for the first time that we've all been, we've been talking about this whole time and just entrusting yourself to this person and seeing what happens. Let's pray that God would change our hearts this week as we take this text in from James chapter 5. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, take this in, that we, you are in control. You've got us. You've got us uh, in the past. You have us now and in the future for eternity. Would you let that peace that comes from that give us patience so we can love others? who don't deserve it, because you loved us when we never deserved it. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.